Did you know that porn has been around for ages? It's true. It's older than electricity and democracy. It's been around longer than they've been making Star Wars spinoffs. All throughout history, cultures have produced images of naked people and people engaging in sexual activity. They weren't always considered explicit or obscene. They may have been seen as art or instructional, like sex education for ancient societies. So what makes porn porn? How does the way we watch porn change what we see in it? What happens on a porn set? Today, on our last installment of Porn Lit, we're going to be drawing back the curtain and looking behind the scenes of the modern mainstream pornography industry. Just as a heads up, I'm going to be talking about exploitation and child pornography later in this episode. Welcome to Porn Lit with Astrid, a limited podcast series designed to develop the media literacy skills we need to become critical consumers of sexually explicit media, aka pornography, aka porn. As a reminder, here at Porn Lit, I'm not pro or anti porn, just hoping to build some media literacy skills. By unpacking the fantasy behind modern mainstream porn, you might gain a new lens or perspective to help you decide what, if anything, pornography means to you. I'm your host, Astrid, an undergraduate student at Mount Allison University, where I've spent the summer researching pornography, sexual and dating violence, and sex education in Canada. As always, check out the show notes for a host of extra sex ed-related resources. Ever since there's been art, there's also been erotic art. It was around the 1850s when European people decided that images of naked people should be off-limits, and the word pornography was invented. Society then had a label to classify the sexually explicit art they wanted to keep hidden. Historically, what gets considered obscene has negatively affected people who engage in same-sex sex or sexual activities that are not considered mainstream, like using toys like whips and handcuffs. Even now, what gets classified as porn versus art or erotica can still be used to exclude and oppress certain groups of people. Deciding where the line is to be drawn between acceptable and unacceptable in pornography is still a challenge for lawmakers. In 1992, the case of R.V. Butler came before the Supreme Court of Canada. Butler had gotten in trouble for selling porn and was fighting it by arguing that existing obscenity laws violated freedom of expression. This court case is what created the definition of what is obscene in Canada today. 
The criminal code says that something is obscene and illegal when there is undue exploitation of sex and one or more of the following subjects. Crime, horror, cruelty, and violence. The court decided that obscenity would be determined by a community standard of tolerance. So basically the degree of harm that can come from material that might be seen as violent, degrading, or dehumanizing. What's interesting about this ruling is that it was the first time that the Supreme Court determined the meaning of obscene based on how it harms groups of people, rather than how it might offend some sexual morality, like the belief that sex is something that should only happen within a marriage. Basically, the court concluded that some pornography is obscene, so its sales and distribution can be restricted in order to prevent harm. But that aside, the internet kind of exists in a realm on its own where the government has less power to decide what's allowed. So how did we get to where we are now with free online porn? And what does that mean for what we see in porn? Sex on film has been recorded and available since we've been making movies, as early as the 1880s. And in the 1920s, brothels often featured small back rooms where men could go to watch pornography. Social factors led to more censorship of pornography throughout the first half of the 20th century. But during the sexual revolution of the 1960s, sex specialty shops gained popularity and began showing porn screenings for adult customers. In the 1970s, the porn industry really gained traction when the hour-long movie Deep Throat had a widely attended theater release. This was the first time a porn movie really made waves in the mainstream and hinted at how profitable hardcore porn was about to become. When the VCR became popular in the 80s, porn on tape was the hot new thing. People could buy porn films and watch them in their own homes. In 1993, when the internet went live, full films were available to download at the click of a mouse. And shortly after that, you could pay for subscriptions to porn websites. Now, as we know... Porn is pretty much fully accessible whenever, wherever, online. Some sites do charge fees to access content, and some performers are taking their rates into their own hands with sites like OnlyFans. But somewhere around 2004, the delivery model for online pornography mostly morphed from pay-per-view porn sites to tube sites, where anyone could upload a video and the revenue comes not from people paying to see the porn, but from advertisers. Granted, a lot of tube sites still host premium content, where you have to pay a subscription, but they also generate revenue through advertising to other porn sites. But isn't that like driving the customer's attention away to another competitor? Well, not in the case of MindGeek, which is the parent company that owns Pornhub and a ton of other porn sites. They basically endlessly promote their own sites, keeping the person watching porn on content owned and operated by them so they can keep making money. So... Has the content of porn changed with the method of delivery? 
Well, to generate more clicks and more advertising dollars, porn sites might be pumping more and more explicit material to their audiences. On sites that are flooded with all kinds of sex, shock value is an effective method of capturing the audience's attention and generating clicks. What does this mean for the performers? Are they expected to do more extreme acts? I can say that it's probably likely that porn performers will have to do some things that are likely painful even if they consent to it. It might be the case that someone performing in a BDSM scene, for example, or experiencing violence as part of the scene might not be enjoying it in the moment. Unlike in a superhero action movie where Tom Holland swings away from an explosion that was actually edited in with special effects, in porn, it's real people performing the real acts you see. Also, there's so much that goes into the making of any porn scene, especially the ones that depict more extreme acts that we just don't see. You don't see people mess up, ever, because of the magic of editing. You don't see awkward moments where something doesn't go the way it's supposed to. You don't see performers getting warmed up beforehand, requesting lube, which is really important, especially for scenes that involve anal sex. Doing everything they need to do in reality to make sex look like a fantasy. Another part of porn is that they will show people having sex in certain positions that might not be comfortable or feel good in reality, but are necessary to get certain camera angles or lighting. But then some people try to do it in real life because that's what they think sex is supposed to look like. What's it like to be a porn star? I hate to disappoint, but I, of course, can't answer that question because I don't work in the industry and I don't have that firsthand experience. Doing any kind of work that involves having sex is generally looked down upon by people who don't do sex work. But what I think is important to remember is that people do all sorts of different jobs for all sorts of different reasons. Someone might become a lawyer because it's their life's passion or because they think it will allow them to make a ton of money. Someone might choose to be a farmer because farming is truly what they love or because it makes sense with other circumstances in their life or both. Often, it's not just one thing. It's a combination of factors. I think the same thing can be said for sex work and performing in pornography. That being said, the sex work industry has its own opportunities for exploitation that might be harmful when it comes to bodies and boundaries. And young people, women in particular, might be vulnerable to getting taken advantage of by companies that exploit their desire to get involved in the industry. They may offer flights or housing and promise them plenty of work when they get there. Once they're on set, they might learn that they're expected to do more than what they initially planned on for less pay. 
If you're interested in learning more about what it's actually like to work in porn, you can find plenty of accounts of performers talking about their own experiences online. It's also important to know that most of the time, people don't get paid until after the shoot is over. That includes the performers, directors, camera people, everyone involved in the production. So, sometimes a performer might be sent a curveball and expected to do something they didn't initially agree to, but the cast and crew are relying on them to finish the scene to get paid, so they might end up doing it anyway. Would you sign up to do something knowing your task might change at some point throughout? Imagine you're on a game show like Fear Factor, where you have to perform some scary or gross task to win prize money. How much money would it take for you to climb up a rock wall, for example, with the catch that the producers might change the challenge, introducing a new obstacle at any point? Also, there is a tremendous range of what people get paid in pornography. But the pay scale is often pretty low for people who are just starting out. And the average career span for female porn performers is 6 to 18 months. That's not a ton of time to make a name for yourself and up your pay grade. Generally, porn is not an easy or quick way to get rich and become a celebrity. The people who are at the top end of the spectrum have put in a lot of time and work to get there. Also, some people don't get paid at all if they're coerced to perform, and victims of non-consensual sharing of porn, like spy cam porn or revenge porn, certainly aren't getting a cut. Pornhub is like YouTube in that it allows members of the public to upload their own videos. This means that there is unfortunately a lot of abusive, underage, exploitative, and non-consensual content on any given porn site. Because these porn sites aren't very well moderated, victims might have their videos up and shared thousands of times before they even know. A majority of the 6.8 million new videos posted on the site each year probably involve consenting adults, but many probably also depict child abuse and non-consensual violence. Because it's impossible to be sure whether someone in a video is 14 or 18, neither Pornhub nor anyone else has a clear idea of how much content is illegal. How do you know whether the porn you're watching was made ethically and not using exploited people? Some porn features clips of performers consenting. This is often more common with bigger production companies than with amateur performers. Some red flags to look out for are sketchy public listings, as in not uploaded by a confirmed amateur or production company, advertising extreme abuse, or tags like looks below the age of 18. But ultimately, it's really hard to ever be sure if the person in the scene is okay with what's going on or not. When a person is being commercially sexually exploited, 
what do you think happens when they say no? Is it our responsibility as consumers to make sure what we're watching is consensual? How would it make you feel if it wasn't? Now, you may have also heard of ethical or feminist porn sites. It's hard to say exactly what makes for feminist porn. Some argue that it's porn that highlights women's pleasure, porn made by female directors and producers, or porn that ensures fair wages and good working conditions. Generally, it's ensured that with these sites, the people making the content are not being exploited. The caveat to this, though, is that you generally have to pay for feminist or ethical porn. When we're surfing for free online pornography, you can never be 100% sure that what you're watching was made ethically. Finally, this might also be a good time to review the laws we have here in Canada to protect young people from being taken advantage of and having their sexual photos shared online. There's no law that prevents people under the age of 18 from viewing pornography, but you have to be 18 or older to legally consent to perform in pornography. It's illegal to share a sexual photo or video of anyone without that person's consent, and it's illegal to produce or distribute media that depicts someone under the age of 18 involved in a sexual activity or displaying a sexual organ. So, even sending nude photos to partners can actually be considered possession, transmission, and making child pornography. Those are pretty serious offenses. What do you think about the laws surrounding child pornography in Canada and how they apply to, say, teens in mutual relationships? I think we can all understand why these laws are in place to protect young people from sexual exploitation. But they give a lot of power to the law. I know so much of our lives happen online, and especially throughout the pandemic, you might be looking for ways to connect virtually. Sexting or digital sex might allow you to explore your sexuality while avoiding person-to-person contact and therefore STIs, risk of pregnancy, all that stuff. But you could also be putting yourself at risk in terms of who might get their hands on the content, on purpose or by accident. How would you feel if those photos got into the wrong hands and posted online? What if you broke up with your partner and they kept the photos? It's important to be aware of these laws and regulations so that you can make the best decisions for yourself about what kind of sexual activity you want to engage in. I hope that by taking a quick peek behind the scenes of the porn industry, you have a bit more information to come to your own conclusions about how you feel about porn. If you've stuck with me this far, I hope you know that my goal has never been to persuade you to watch porn or to scare you away from it. I just hope that you have the tools to be a bit more critical of what you see, 
to question what you're watching and ask yourself what it's saying about sex and the folks having sex. You shouldn't take every tweet or every clickbaity article headline you see at face value. So why should you do so with porn? Porn doesn't have to be the gold standard, the only model, the be-all, end-all guide to sex. In fact, by understanding that it's a fantasy that often shows a narrow idea of sex, you kind of open yourself up to the possibility that sex, as long as it's with the enthusiastic consent of everyone involved, can mean anything you want it to. Just like any media, you get to figure out how it fits in with your life, your values, your perspectives, or not. Now, to quickly recap our time together. One, enthusiastic consent is absolutely essential for sex, even if porn tries to skirt around the topic. Two, sex is not one size fits all. And it's important to be critical of how porn feeds into different stereotypes about people of different genders, sexualities, and races. Making generalizations about people's sexual inclinations can be really harmful. And three, porn is an entertainment industry, meaning there's so much going on behind the scenes that you don't see to create a fantastical idea of sex. Porn exists to entertain and to make money. So while it's sending us plenty of messages about sex and sexuality, it's not exactly the best source for reliable, informative sex ed. At the end of the day, human sexuality is so diverse, and it's your body, so you get to decide what to do with it. If you take anything away from this pod, just remember that there is no reason that sex in real life needs to look like sex in porn. I'm Astrid, and this has been Porn Lit. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to thank Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton and Dr. Robbie Moser for their generous instruction, feedback, and supervision throughout this research project, as well as Matt Tunnicliffe for advising the making of this podcast. Podcast production by Jeremy Dahl at Pale Blue Dot Studios. This project was made possible by an independent student research grant through Mount Allison University. <laughs>